Welcome back to another Ag Watchers, the first episode of 2022, the year that we get rid of COVID. Uh, <laughs> I'm quite excited about this podcast. It's one that we've wanted to do basically since we started the podcast. Uh, Jonathan Kingsman, the uh, seminal author of Commodity Conversations, the, the I guess the uh, original look at conversations between people in the commodity space. <laughs> I think if there was a, a hall of legends within the commodity space, um, I would obviously get an invite, uh, but I think jo- Jonathan would as well. Uh, Jonathan, thanks for, thanks for coming along and having a chat with us this, this morning for us and this evening for Matt. Yeah, well, and this evening for you, Andrew, as well. No, it's a pleasure to have you, to be here. So thank you for the invitation. So, Jonathan, can you tell us in, in a very short, sharp sort of, a, a bit of an intro into who you are and, and sure. what you've done? I started with Cargill in 1978, so I'm pretty ancient. I'm 65 years old, so I retired just at the end of last year. I uh, was uh, in a sugar department working in Minneapolis and in London. I then moved on to the brokerage side of the business with um, Continental Grains um, brokerage, futures brokerage operation. Uh, and then moved to, when I moved to Paris, I set up my own physical broking company, Kingsman SA, that was 1990. And that walked into um, an analytical uh, company with a number of employees, analysts primarily looking at the markets, particularly sugar and biofuels. Okay. And through biofuels, the oil seeds and the grains. And then in 2012, we were acquired by S&P uh, Platts. I stayed for a few years. And since then, I've been writing and blogging. And my website is commodityconversations.com. Right. And so we'll go into, we'll go into more depth in a little bit. But what we've got to do is we've got to do our psychological test of you first. <laughs> Just to check that you're, you're you're appropriate and that you're all healthy, and that there's there's nothing wrong with your mind. So we will start off with the first six. What was it called actually, Matt? Six cents. Cents. We've got to think of a better name for that. No, uh, it's a bit of a tongue tie, tongue twister, isn't it? It's especially eight o'clock in the morning. So, it's board association, Jonathan. We will, okay. Matt. You can you can start. So, so give us the first, first word or phrase that comes to mind from each word. You know, quick, sharp, off of the, uh, straight off the tongue. Yeah, uh, sustainable cropping. Uh, environment. Commodity traders. Uh, good guys. Black pudding. Um, not so keen. Crocs footwear. Not so keen either. <laughs> yeah, I think we might have to cancel this podcast. Uh, <laughs> um, what about uh, what was I was going to say? Um, God, I've got a mental blank. Andrew, you go and I'll think of one. Government intervention in markets. Uh, bad, uh, well intentioned, but bad consequences. And Brexit. Oh, terrible. When, it, when intended, but bad consequences. There we go. Because you're obviously, from the accent, Jonathan, you're an Englishman, but you're now living in Switzerland. Absolutely. I left England uh, 30, nearly 35 years ago. Um, but I was very sad. I lived in Paris for 20 years. So I'm a, a committed European. So I was very sad about Brexit. I thought it was going backwards. I think um, we needed to be in bigger groups and it was... Well, like Trumpism, it was going towards um, a sort of golden era, going back to a golden era that didn't really exist. And Mm. instead of of we should be going forward. So that's quite quite a few um, unintended consequences as well immediately afterwards, I think, and probably still yet to play out. Um, You know, I was thinking particularly of the issues around supply chain that they saw uh, with the lack of truck drivers and, you know, fuel rationing and whatnot. But um, I think they've still got more to play out in that space um, from that perspective, do you think? Absolutely. Well, Boris Johnson once said F, F business, um, but he really could have said F agriculture as well because and the food supply chain 
because it's, a, it's like unscrambling an omelette. You've got the United Kingdom tied into this trading block uh, where you've got people producing food and, and all over the place and British exporters exporting to throughout Europe. And then all these controls come in and the British cheese producers um, uh, can't export anymore. So I think a lot of people were sold a, a dream um, which was uh, not, not going to happen. It's for a lot of people, it's turning into a bit of a nightmare, particularly food exporters. And in the UK, you've got the, the subsidies, European subsidies being replaced by um, local grants, local subsidies. And there's a move towards environmental mental greening, move towards um, rewilding in the UK. But unfortunately, that's, that's, uh, I think the people that are implementing don't really understand agriculture. And I think that uh, this is going to be a very tumultuous period ahead for the UK farmers. Lots of roller coaster ride, ups and downs, changes of direction, U-turns. It's going to make it very difficult for them and for UK uh, merchants to be able to keep the food supply going. So uh, for me, Brexit was the UK shooting itself in the foot for agriculture I and for business. And I think that you, you made the point there about the subsidies and more, more greening, which is a lot of that's happening throughout Europe and in Australia we don't have much in the way of subsidies. We've got the lowest subsidy rate in the world apart from I think Brazil and one of the one of the things you have or as soon as you have subsidies in my view is that you then have another partner in your business uh, who you know doesn't necessarily understand your business. So you've got another stakeholder within your business that has a lot of say over what you can do and how you can operate that business. And I don't think it's good in the longer term for, for, for productivity. So, so Jonathan, we're here to talk about you, I guess. And uh, we're here to talk about uh, your book. You're the second, no, you're the third author that we've had on the podcast. We had uh, Gabrielle Chan, uh, who wrote a number of books in Australia on rural sort of development and rural industries. Uh, she was quite different from you in that she has a a long history as a as a journalist. So it was quite a quite an obvious thing to get into writing a book. But but yourself, you don't come from that background. You've come from a, a trading background. What what got you into? Well, I think was the first you wrote you wrote the sugar trading manual back in the two thousands, and then you've obviously started off with Commodity Conversations was the probably the big one that came out. What, what got you on to deciding to, to write that? What, what was the impetus for that? Well, when I uh, left um, uh, S&P Platts, I was working still as a, a consultant, but part-time for them. So I had time on my hands. And so the first book, on The Sugar Casino, was effectively a brain dump, everything I knew about sugar um, in one book. I felt that we'd had a lot of young people coming into the business and there was nothing really for young people to read about commodity trading. And I wanted to write a book, wanted to try and fill that gap to write a book um, designed for a student um, at university, thinking about a career in the business, wanting to learn more about it and wanting to understand more about sugar and markets because sugar was my speciality. So then I was approached by ICE um, to Continental Exchange after that, that said they liked the book and why didn't I write a book for general commodities introducing commodity trading and commodity merchandising to a wider public explaining what it is. And so that's what I did. It's really about physical commodity trading, um, how it works, uh, etc. and what's involved, how commodity traders make their money and also the importance of documents, etc. So it's not a it's not a book for people who are looking to speculate on the market and to, to day trade, for example. But it's, made, it's for young people who are looking to um, get into the business. So it, it sells well. Um, none of these books sell very well. If I, I'm trying to thinking about writing a book about a, a wizard in, in a British school, um, but I haven't got around to it yet. But for the moment, <laughs> it's a small market. Um, um, but it's appreciated. A number of the big trading companies give the book uh, Commodity Conversations to their new recruits or 
in in recruiting sessions at university. So it's very gratifying. Um, Jonathan, um, unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to read Commodity Conversations. I think Andrew reads it once every year, so he raves about it. I should should borrow a copy or even indeed buy a copy and have a look. But my my background uh, for many years was in currency trading. Um, And before before I got into that game, I was doing a bit of equities privately and and someone put me onto a book that I'm guessing is a similar type style, um, Market Wizards by Jack D. Schwager, if you're familiar with that where basically every chapter is an interview of a successful trader within that financial world space. So it could be an options trader or an equities trader. Or I think they did, in, you know, down the track, they had some FX guys and some commodity guys and metals traders as well. Um, is that the kind of premise of what you, the commodity conversations? Is it basically a, a, a discussion with different people within the sector? Is that, is that what it's about? Absolutely. Um, I'm very familiar with, with uh, Schrager's books. I think they're great. I've got them all. Um, but I, what I wanted to do was to have more a text as well, more of a textbook type thing, interspersed with the interviews with the traders. So the idea was to put uh, explanation of the different aspects of trading, um, the risks, uh, the supply chain, sustainability, putting that all together, um, but then interspersing that with real life interviews with top people from the industry. So all of my books have followed that, that uh, same scheme where you've got text followed by interviews with people who are actually trading these commodities. So that's the idea. So it's not just theoretical, but it's full life experience uh, with the traders. And it's not written as a, a difficult textbook with lots of diagrams. It's written, it's supposed to be accessible. No, um, I, that, that's the one thing I would say about all the books is that they are all quite accessible in that they're just conversations. Which is yeah. which makes it really easy to follow, and it is basically a, a who's who in the industry as well. And one one of the things I guess one of the questions I had is what surprises me about the books is how how frank and open a lot of the people are. Whereas typically, you know, a lot of these companies are not guarded so much, but they have. You know, a media department that tells them what what they can and can't say, and how how did you get around that? Well, or, 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 or were there any issues around that at any point? Well, first first of all, I come from the industry. I'm not a journalist, um, so quite often people would say something or tell me something, and I said, "Well, I don't think maybe you should say that. It doesn't come across. I know what you mean, but it doesn't come across very well." So I kind of work with them to round off a little bit the edges in case things could be misinterpreted. Because whenever people talk about trying to make money from farming or from uh, merchandising, the, the most consumers think that's terrible, that people shouldn't be making money out of food. And I don't know why, um, because people are quite happy to make, if Apple makes billions out of computers, but if somebody makes money, a farmer or a merchandiser makes money out of food supply, it's very usually viewed as bad or as immoral. So working with them very carefully to make sure that it comes across well and that they're expressing themselves correctly. There was a certain amount of trust because I come from the industry. Um, Secondly, uh, because I know the business, the the conversation is on a similar level. Hmm. So they don't have to explain everything. And lastly, they know that it's intended for young people who are looking to get into the business. Um, or curious about the business or learn, want to learn about it. So uh, it's important to be frank and not to talk with the sort of PR yep. bump. So I get around that. The, one of the things to do, is, as I do now, is the um, interviews in, in live, uh, orally, rather than written. Um, I made the mistake sometimes of asking people who hadn't got any time to write yeah. replies. It's a disaster because it just gets written by the PR department and it's just PR <laughs> Um, so it's always a, a written article, and, an oral article, sorry. And, and the, book is, the book is obviously intended for a new entrance to the industry. And, and Matt, it would have been a good book when you moved across to Ag five or six mm. years ago. Mm. Uh, for you. Is, that, is that part of the reason why you read it every year, Andrew, so you can feel like you're a young person just entering into Ag again, not some old, wise and uh, grumpy Scottish agricultural analyst now? 
Well, I just, I just, I just read it every year because I've, I've got a, you know, short, bad short term memory, and I'll forget <laughs> what happened. It, but, but, do you find the intention was for for new entrants? But I, I know obviously a lot of people in the industry who have been in the industry for a long time who have read the book, and 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 from my point of view, I actually quite enjoyed reading it, you know, because obviously my background is mainly grains. What I liked reading about it was all the other commodities, like uh, you had uh, the tea trader. Yeah. I think I think that was my favourite one actually, uh, because it was it was giving you an insight into a different part of the market, um, and I think that's 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 a good thing about it is the is the variety. But then you wrote that book, and then you went on to write the uh, your next book was the which I've got actually here somewhere uh, out of the shadows, not out of the shadows. What was yes. it? Uh, yeah, out of the shadows, and that was sort of. Uh, an update on on Darren Morgan's book of the of the seventies. What was the what was the idea behind that one? Where did, where did that one come from? Well, that that one is the, the the biggest seller. It's still not selling very well. I mean, it's selling well for the book, but it's, it's the biggest seller out of them all. Uh, Dan Morgan, I'm a big fan of Dan Morgan, and he wrote this book in 1979 about the Great Grain Robbery, which is basically a cross section, cross view of the grain industry at that time, and that's 40 years ago, and it's quite everything's changed. The USR doesn't exist anymore. There's a whole world has changed. A number of the companies don't exist anymore. So uh, there was a friend of mine who was president of GAFTA at that time, and he said he would love to write somebody to write an update. And he got went took me out to a nice Italian restaurant for lunch, drank, fed me too much Italian wine, and I agreed to do it. Yep. Um, and so that was uh, that was. Very interesting book to write because it's. I'm not a journalist. I'm not a historian. I'm a. I'm a commodity trader. So a few people have told me that they're disappointed with the book because it's not enough history in it. Um, but I'm not a historian. I'm a, a trader. So I wrote it from a trading angle. Um, and uh, the great thing was that I got buy-in from from the industry. All the all the big companies said, "Well, yeah, it's great if your idea is to promote the industry and to explain how it works. Then we'll." happy to help. So we got the CEOs of most of the big companies to as interviewees, we got some very good company people. We've got a good, one of the best interviews in the book is from the guy from um, Nelson Clay, uh, Jason Clay, sorry, from um, the uh, WWF World Wildlife Fund. Mm. Um, uh, so the idea was to take a sort of, I know it's a stupid word, holistic view from the, from the uh, trade houses to the consumers to the ONGs and uh, see where where we are. And so that's quite. I'm quite pleased with that book because quite a few uh, the big companies have bought uh, sort of 50, 100 copies. They give them to their clients. They explain to their uh, their staff what they do. Um, and a lot of these big companies, you get uh, the traders who know what they do and understand the markets. But you often get the uh, the admin people, the finance people, the PR people who really don't understand it at all. And so they, they're reading that book. They can say, ah, oh, so that's what we do. That's how it works. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that we get quite a lot, we do a lot of uh, lectures to, to universities in Australia on markets and agricultural economics. And, and we actually quite often get the, the question, you know, what is the text that I can read to give me more information? And there's obviously all the, uh, the academic books that are, not difficult to read, but just dull and boring to read. And and we tend to recommend this one as one to, to read alongside those books, uh, because I think it does give a little of a, a practical bent on on the theory. Because if you read the theory, it just becomes too too bland and too far removed from a student's reality. So so I don't know if anyone's bought it from any of the universities in uh, in Australia, but you know we'll uh, we'll we'll take our commission check from you at some point. Uh, it's not going to be very much money because we put I price of the books very low. Uh, you can buy them on Kindle four ninety nine. So the idea is not to make money out of it. It's I enjoy writing them, uh, but I'm not trying to make money out of them, and I want them to be accessible. So I think everybody can afford four ninety nine. Do you do you find that's a, that's an interesting point? Cause I, like I, I used to have a Kindle a long time ago, but I, when they first came out, actually, because I thought it was a great idea, but I couldn't read on it. I just found. Um, that is just, it's too difficult to read for me. I like a physical book. 
Um, you, so I'm sure you can get them in a hard copy though. Eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You I've, could I've order got, them in. Yeah. I've got the hard copy, yeah. Um, do you find more people are buying the physical versus the Kindle or? Uh, physical. Physical, yeah, I thought it would be the case. Most people buy the physical book um, because they like to have it on the, the shelf. They like to be able to go and ah, look back through it and find a, a quote that they're looking for. Um, and also to give them to students and staff and clients. Well, I, I, one of the reasons I look back at the Commodity Conversations book is for the quote at the start of the book from Libanius. Remind me of that. Uh, it was a quote, I don't have the book here, uh, but uh, it's a quote from like the ninth century about uh, uh, yeah. about the, the trade. I think I actually quoted this, uh, I wrote, read this back when we interviewed Swiffin. Um, okay. About you know God bestowing different commodities around the world, and uh, so everyone can enjoy the fruits of that labour. Commerce was brought into being. Like I think that's a fantastic quote, and it really does sum up the market. You know that was from you know thousand odd years ago. So I do the same thing. I go back to that to 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 read that, and uh, I'm sure sure other people are, are, are the same. In terms of in terms of the, the reception, what what has the reception been? And we're going to go on to a minute because you've actually got a new book out, uh, and I can see about ten copies behind you uh, on the shelf. Uh, in terms of the actual reception, what has the reception been? Have have you and, and have you had any res- reception from people who aren't in the trade? What's that response been? I think it's been overall pr- pretty good. Uh, in fact, it's been overwhelmingly good. Uh, the, the writing, I'm not a journalist, I'm not a professional writer, so there's been criticism, for example, about the format or the the, the, the fact that the, the book arrived from Amazon sort of a bit torn or something like that, which I got no control over, um, or the printing. Overall, they're pretty good. I had one negative comment on Amazon once that somebody said that they were expecting a book where, where you dished up all the dirt and this is supposed to be full of all the stories about bad practice and all the worst things that happened. And he was very disappointed that it was just dull and boring and, and sort of no um, nasty stuff going on. So overall, it's good. I think people appreciate uh, that there, was, there weren't really many books or any books about, about the commodity, agricultural commodity trading space. And that sort of filled that spot. So I think people are quite happy with that. I know they're looking, if, they're, if they're looking for uh, books of um, outlining bad behaviour in in markets, they could just go to Michael Lewis's um, Liars Poker. That's that's a pretty good one, I think. From from that perspective, there's a lot of uh, questionable behaviour in that space. But a- Andrew alluded to you, your most recent offering, uh, Jonathan, which I think is um, looks more towards that. I think one of the questions in the start of the um, the Word Association was sustainable farming, and and that's part of what this um, this most recent offering is. Is it? Absolutely. So this this book is uh, it's called it's commodity crops and the merchants who trade them is uh, designed as a follow follow up to commodity conversations and it's looking at the different crops nine major crops and a bit on, bit on the history of them but really what are, what is the future of agriculture um, and agricultural trading and it's a very big question and so I got a lot of buy in from some of the bigger traders, uh, the main traders in the business. In fact, uh, after commodity conversations, people said, oh, well, actually, the good book's not bad. So this time I got even the top, more top traders involved. So I was very flattered by that. And what it's really looking at is the future of agriculture and the future of agricultural trading. How is the big issue is decarbonization. And if we're going to decarbonize the economy, um, how are we going to decarbonize agriculture? And so that's the, the, the main theme of the, the book uh, with a number of sub-themes. But cast, what is the future of agriculture and the future of merchandising? And this, uh, so, 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 sorry, I'm sorry, Matt. So it's the future of agriculture from the point of view of merchants and, and their views on what the future will be, which I think I is an important point. And a friend of ours, Liz Jackson, uh, who she's a, a, a professor in not professor she's a lecturer sorry I won't put her too high up uh, in uh, logistics and supply chains 
and, and one of the things that frustrates her a lot is the fact that the focus is always on the farm rather than this actual supply chain. And, and that we look, we talk about the future a lot of the time in terms of what happens to a farmer, not the merchant's view or not the, uh, the processor's view, not the consumer's view. So it's important to get another point of view from, from the merchant's point of view, which, which, which that provides. Absolutely. So because the, the merchants see the whole supply chain, a uh, number of farmers do as well, but most farmers now are, are, are big um, single crop farmers or, or corn, wheat, etc., soybeans. And so it's not the local organic farming where you go and meet the guy that you have a little farm shop and sell your rhubarb or your carrots at the weekend. So I think that the merchant is the link between the consumer and the farmer. Uh, the merchants don't go into farming. They don't understand it. They don't like it. The farmers do a very good job at it. Uh, but the merchants are going more into, more closer to the consumer. They're looking for higher value business. So they're moving towards the consumers uh, into retail packaging, et cetera, into branding. And therefore, they're getting more of an idea of what the consumer wants and how to feed that back along the supply chain. So one of the big issues is tradability and traceability because a consumer wants to know that his food hasn't been has been produced without damaging the environment or impacting on human rights. So for that not for that to get through to the consumer, he needs to the supply chain has to be traceable. And so that whole question of if it's traceable and can be traceable from farm to fork, then how does it trader make his money because the trader makes his money by uh, optionality by trading along the different elements of the supply chain so that's a whole question about the, the future of uh, agriculture merchandising that's it's very key at the moment and that's it's very pressing it's pressing as well jonathan for the from an australian context um particularly that aspect of the traceability around the product because um you know coming out of the cop 26 um Obviously, there was a handful of um, agreements that Australia, the Australian government wasn't prepared to sign up to. One of them was the methane pledge. Um, but, but there is this feeling um, growing within Australia, within you know, some areas of agriculture, that if we don't, um, if we don't as a country start to um, take it seriously, we're going to be left out as a little bit of an international pariah. And, and whether that has trade implications for Australian products, certainly going into parts like the EU where, where, where that kind of focus is on um, how environmentally sustainable is that product and that supply chain. Absolutely. So what, what the world's trying to do is to decarbonise the economy, reduce carbon emissions um, globally, but without a central government. And so each country is, trying, is, is obliged or is supposed to do it themselves. But that opens a number of questions because you have free, free riders, people that say, well, if I don't do it, others will. And even if I do do it, others maybe won't. So what's the point? So what we probably will see is carbon taxes introduced um, in importing countries. And that means more trade barriers. So the EU will say, well, we're not going to import from uh, Brazil because of the Amazon. We're not going to import from from." Australia because of methane, et cetera. So it gives politicians more opportunities to throw up barriers and distort markets more. So uh, that's, that's the, the, one of the main problems with it is it brings politics into it. And politics have always been in, this, in the food supply. Food is too important for politicians to stay out of. Um, but politicians will be coming back more and more and politics coming into more you look at the, the the trade route between china and australia mm. between china and the us it distorts markets makes them harder to predict etc it's uh we could coin a new phrase on this podcast andrew it's like an enviro protectionism uh, creeping in where, where you're going to put tariffs on a country if they're not behaving or a country's products if they're not behaving in a certain fashion environmentally speaking Matt, it's a bit like when I... It's happening already at this discussion in the EU about um, uh, soybeans from uh, Brazil. Um, but it's, it's government as well as consumers. So the, the, the farmer and the supply chain have got pressure from both governments and consumers. Which is going to be a challenge ongoing because going back to that traceability and, you know, in the past, traders having that optionality, you know, 
uh, optional origin uh, trades of, of wheat into a country, for example, that's going to be harder and harder to do potentially. Do you think, we all, we all know that trading margins uh, are not as big as for, for trading companies as farmers actually think they are. You know, one, one of the comments we hear is, you know, uh, traders there and merchants, they're all, they're all scumbags. And they're all taking, you know, all, all, all the profit out of my, my commodity, whichever it may be. It's not necessarily the case, you know, because margins aren't actually that strong on trading. And, and so, so do you see then that the market is going to be less of a opportunistic trading environment and more of a, you know, a vertically integrated environment where in reality really the merchants actually really become the consumers themselves to a large extent. You know, Cargill, if I use a hypothetical example, Cargill Australia might be selling buying the canola, crushing it at their own plant in Australia, or sending the seed to Europe to be crushed in their own plant there, and then be packaged into their own product, you know, high lake oils or, or whatever it may be. So it becomes more closed internal supply chains, which we probably have seen more and more of in the last two decades. But do you think that will continue? Absolutely. Um, I think there's big misunderstanding about how uh, merchants make their money. The farmers and consumers both think that mer merchants make huge amounts of money just by buying from somebody and selling to somebody else. But these margins have been thin or negative for, for years. Uh, merchants make their money by taking advantage of mispricing all along the supply chain where something is overvalued compared to something else. And by buying one thing and selling another to uh, level out that mispricing. So they're not buying from farmer A and selling to consumer B and taking a markup. What they're doing is, trying, is taking advantage of profiting from uh, inefficiencies and mispricing all along the supply chain um, and taking risk in doing that because they're, they're taking risks of selling stuff and buying stuff. So it's not um, a, a business of just taking a big markup and screwing the farmer and screwing the consumer. That doesn't happen. What's happening is that because these uh, margins are getting thinner and because the markets are getting more transparent um, and very often they're negative, that uh, the big merchants, merchandise companies, are trying to seek out value, higher margins all along, anywhere they can. And the closer you get to the consumer, the higher the margin is. So they're moving into, into bottled vegetable oil, they're moving into different types of uh, consumer products. And as they do that, then you've got uh, the whole supply chain behind them. So if you look like a company, a company like ADM, for example, their whole basis is to only trade when they have to um, and otherwise source throughout the whole supply chain. Um, so the traders are becoming consumers to the farmer in that sense. You're right. But we're not seeing, we did see in the past, uh, some of the trading companies did attempt to get into farming, uh, which was largely, I think you alluded to earlier on, was largely unsuccessful. Uh, and we're not seeing any of that though, are we? we, we we've no. seen very, very no. limited, you know, we obviously see, you know, private equity, investing in, in agriculture, but not the actual trading firms themselves. Like Cargill had a play with Black River assets, you know, which is now no longer part of Cargill, I don't think. Uh, but they aren't looking at that anymore, are they? Uh, no, um, everybody thinks that traders make huge margins on, on moving stuff from A to B. But everyone also thinks that farmers make a huge amount of money just by planting a seed in the field and then watching it grow. Um, farming is tough. It's very difficult. I grew up on a little farm and it's not easy. Um, and it's very specialized and quite often it makes generations of experience for a good farm to work. Uh, the big trade, trading companies went into farming in a big way in sugar in Brazil mm. uh, 10, 20 years ago. And it was a complete disaster. Uh, because it's a different business. They didn't understand it. They didn't like it. A trader, if he has a bad position, um, 
just likes to get out, get out of it, go home, have, um, kick the dog or buy, drink a beer and forget about it. But for a farmer, you have a bad season when you can't get out of it. You just carry on and do it and have another game. Well, the one I hope makes one's better. Yeah, yeah. So farming is very, very tough and specialized and needs a lot of experience. And traders doesn't fit a trader mentality. That was um, one of the curious things when going back to one of the six cents questions, Jonathan, um, and your response to it, a little Scottish bird told me that that farm that you grew up on was a pig farm, I believe. And um, I was just quite surprised at the uh, negative, uh, um, you know, kind of uh, view towards black pudding uh, coming from a pig farm. Andrew and I are both uh, partnership in partnership in a pig farm and, and both fans of black pudding, but... Uh, is that is that a true but that you're I, I, the son I, I, of a pig farmer? I'd, I'd like I'm to the son of a pig farmer. Yeah, I'd, also, I'd, 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 also, a, I'd also like to point out something as well, going back to the environmentalism, yeah? <laughs> in that black pudding and, and other forms of offal are one of the most environmentally friendly food products out there. And and they should be encouraged because A, black pudding has obviously high in iron, very, very good for you, um, and also saves the world. One... One one breakfast at a time. It, it actually, it black pudding. If you look at it on a like, I've I've in the last two weeks, I've had quite a lot of uh, <laughs> Scottish Scottish deep, deep fried black pudding. Probably a lot of a lot of Scottish breakfasts, and and I, and I look at the black pudding on it, and I think to myself, well, that is my uh, my offset for the rest of the breakfast. So so the sausage, the potato scone, you know, the bacon is all offset by that black pudding and that haggis because otherwise if we weren't eating that it would be you know going down the chute so anyway that's that's my 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 uh, first uh uh Heuberg tangent for the year and mm. uh, so so yeah so your father was 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 a farmer and uh, you yeah. never thought you never thought about getting into that or um he, he got into farming by accident he had a little hotel and then started growing vegetables for the hotel and then started starting keeping pigs for the, um, to feed the waste from the hotel. And, and then he bought a little bakery and then the same, so the same thing happens. And then he was growing barley for the, far, for the pigs. He couldn't, kept getting bigger and bigger, bigger units going up. The neighbors were complaining more and more. We were in, a, in, a, in an area which is rural, but became, over the years became suburban. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just couldn't manage to, to, to make it profitable, effectively. He just kept going and going and going. Um, there's an old saying, that, the joke about a farmer that wins, a, wins the lottery. And the, somebody says, well, what are you going to do with all the money? He said, well, I'm just going to keep farming until it's all gone. <laughs> and so that was kind of what my father did. Um, and he just he, he tried to put the pigs outside and stopped growing barley, so put kept the figs outside, but they grew slower. Um, so he put them back in again, and then they kept getting sick. A lot of uh, antibiotics, a lot of, lot of veterinary um, bills. So it was, he, he kept going, a very stubborn man. Most farmers are stubborn. Um, but no, I wasn't tempted to do it. And in fact, it kind of put me off a little bit, the sort of the, the intensive farming as a, as a young child. And uh, I'm not a... Uh, not a big fan of, uh, not a big meat eater. But my, neither of my two brothers either, funnily enough. So they were kind of put off it a little bit. Walk, walking through a pig shed can do that. Uh, it's, it's not Andrew's favourite pl- uh, place in the world, is it, Andrew, inside the shed? Well, I think, I think I'm a bit like uh, all these trading companies that realised that farming wasn't for them. Like we, we've got the, we've got, what do we have? 12 sheds, so what, four and a half thousand yeah. pigs. Yeah, and, something like that. Uh, I still can't get used to the ammonia. <laughs> it still, it still makes me feel my gag reflex is always, <laughs> always there. Uh, but no, it's 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 a, it's a it was an experience, Matt, wasn't it? Uh, having the pig farm. <laughs> uh, mm. So is it is it profitable? It is. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it is. Which it is. is a, it's a grow. It's a grow. What we call a grow out facility here in Australia. So it's a, we don't have we don't have the same risk in terms of price risk for feed the feed side of it, nor the, nor the livestock side. Of it. We're basically contract growers for. We're, um, we're a pig hotel. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we yeah. got a, we got a guaranteed return on investment. So it works. 
quite well. Uh, although, uh, an, an are you guys are you guys worried about the um, China and buying and the swine fever? Because the Chinese have bought a lot of of meat over the last few years, but are they going to go back now to buying grain and and feeding their own hogs or pigs? Is that going to affect the Australian pig market? Uh, we don't we don't send uh, product really out in in any decent way. A lot of the Australian product that's produced here is consumed domestically, so we're actually a bigger importer, importer. Uh, okay. of, of product. Um, uh, in terms of the Chinese situation, we certainly have seen a big um, a big uptick when when there was that um, void in China of pork. We we saw a big surge in our um, sheep meat and cattle exports to to China, um, but that's that's kind of tapered off a bit now because we're going through a, a, a tight supply scenario. Um, but well, to, to- that that Chinese that Chinese situation though is not they're not they're not forecast to get back to the levels are at prior to ASF until about the middle of this decade. So there could be another year or two left to go before they really um, start to you know, Im- normalise. Import volumes into China are still strong at the moment. Yep. But I think, look, you know, well, to give a bit of feedback, Matt has actually also wrote a book uh, in the last year. Have uh, I? It's a bit, <laughs> it's a bit, it's a bit, bit shorter. Uh, Matt wrote the uh, Australian pork industry um, State of the industry. It's it's Uh, more a report than a book, Andrew. But uh, thank you for the. I was was, was was just trying to big you up there, uh, so so you could think you were an author as well. Um, Mm, Yeah, thirty-page book with lots of charts in it, (laughs) lots lots of pictures. That's what I was going to ask. Have you have you ever considered doing like a commodity conversations for, you know, one with a bit more pictures, you know, and and illustrations for the likes of Matt, who's a bit of a slow reader. the, the new book's got some pictures, it's got some graphs in it. Um, my son finally taught me how to use a, whatever it is, Apple charts or whatever they're called. Um, so this one's got some charts in it. So you'll be all right. Yeah, I think, I'm a, yeah, I think Andrew says slow learner. I like to call it a visual learner, uh, Jonathan. Yeah. Well, uh, a, picture tells, a picture's worth a thousand words, and it's certainly true. But yeah. in the other books, I agree, that they were too wordy. They, they needed graphs, and I have been tempted to go back and, and redo them, but for the moment, I can't be bothered. In terms, but go, going back to the, the red meat, though, and, and that, the, the obviously, we had a supercharged environment, and, and Matt's probably the best one to speak about it, because Matt is a, is a livestock analyst, and uh, we got supercharged. We had that African swine fever, just, you know, supercharged demand for, uh, for meat around the world, because it was... A deficit of supply. It was kind of almost the biggest parallel would probably be the the growth of biofuels and corn in the in the two thousands. It just created so much demand in, in a short period of time. Um, but I think, and and this is a discussion that we have quite a lot with people about fake meat. And, and I know that you've spoken to a lot of uh, a lot of the interviews you have. A lot of the companies discuss that they've invested in you know alternate protein. Uh, ADM, I think, was one of them. But the reality is for every single person even going for a vegan option or, or a vegetarian option, there's probably two or three more that are affluent enough to afford meat and are, and are buying more meat. So I think the demand for red meat is still extremely strong uh, ongoing. So I'm, maybe, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm looking for confirmation bias, uh, but I'm pretty, still pretty, still pretty bullish on, on livestock long term. In my new book, um, I interviewed Soren Schroeder, who was ex-CEO of Bungie, um, who's now become a sort of uh, investor uh, into the industry and different things and a trend watcher. Um, he says that the, uh, the non-dairy milk in the, in the US has taken 12 to 15% of the market. He suggests that uh, fake meat or would take a similar percentage of the US market over time. Um, one of the biggest drivers of, of the fake meat is animal welfare, mm. um, feeling that the, the animals need to be better treated. And I think that meat is too cheap um, to, for the public. Um, everyone expects food to be really cheap and such a small percentage of their revenue. Um, that This has driven farmers to take on uh, industrial-type farming practices as far as 
uh, meat and livestock is concerned. So I think what we see is a combined thing with some move towards um, fake meat, which might take 10, 15% of the market over time, but also a move towards more sustainable, environmentally sustainable and animal welfare, so that people will be prepared to pay more for grass-fed uh, cattle and livestock in the States and for, for dairy where they felt that the, the cows are spending time outside, etc. So I think this hopefully see a move towards people willing to pay more um, for better practices and improved animal welfare. I think. Yeah, that's something that's something I've, I've discussed a few times at conferences and, and presented to where we have actually seen already in the last few years from an Australian context, Australia is still um, within our beef sector, we're still predominantly grass finished. Um, it's it's the, the grain fed side and that intensive side of the beef sector is definitely growing. Um, we're at about 45% of our of our annual turnoff now of cattle, beef cattle is, um, is grain finished, but nothing like the size of the US that they're at in terms of how dominant their grain fed sector is. But um, we are seeing uh, in certain markets in North America and, and Europe's not a big market for our beef, but we are seeing some trend there where, um, you know, the Western consumer is looking for, again, that traceability aspect and looking for a product that has those environmental credentials like a grass-fed uh, type system or a regenerative agriculture system. Um, so it's almost becoming a, a two-tiered premium market in, in some parts of the world, like in Northern Asia, that grain-fed, you know, high intramuscular fat beef is still popular. Um, but in other markets, the, the grass-fed is, 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 you know, creating a real niche for itself and, and getting a premium as well, uh, as long as you've got that traceability behind the product, which is – and Australia has that um, – reputation for, for good quality, environmentally sustainable produced. And, and we're seeing the same growth in actual sheep meat as well. So Australian sheep meat is, um, has had a huge year this year in, into the US. And I think part of that narrative is also around um, the, 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 the kind of smaller environmental footprint that the sheep has on the Australian environment as well. Um, so I think that's definitely, I've been spruiking that for a while, the the, the, the long-term future of um, certainly the Australian sheep meat producer has, has got another you know, decade at least of, of pretty rosy um, supply and demand fundamentals. Yeah. Well, in most developed countries, people spend less than 10% of their income on food. Um, in the US, it's less, less than 10%. In the UK, it's less than 10%. So most of us could pay more for our food than we currently pay. And so we should be willing to pay the correct price of the food, which is the food, um, which is where the, the, the livestock is raised environmentally friendly in, in a good way, where it doesn't impact on the environment, where the true costs are paid. Because at the moment, for example, in, in some countries where you get crops, you, uh, for example, in the, in the Amazon, the, the price doesn't reflect the environmental cost to the planet. Um, or the welfare costs to the animals. And so I think uh, we've got to come out of this, this thing we're in at the moment where food has to be cheap, it has to be two-for-one offers, it has to be special offer, it has to have a big yellow sticker on it or the thing before anyone buys it. Um, because in most other products, it's not like that. You're willing to buy your new iPhone, you're not looking for the, the cheapest one, you're willing to pay for it. So I think people need to be willing to pay for what I call the true cost of food and mm. taking into account everything. Is there a potential, though, that we see <clears throat> almost a, a three-tier market to a degree? As uh, you, So you've got the traditional intensive farm systems, whether they're pig or chicken or whether they're grain-fed beef, um, that are, that are you know, going to a certain sp space within the market globally. But then you've got the rise of this kind of eventually going to be a cheaper plant-based meat source, or whatever you want to call it, fake meat, um, and, and that's going to potentially be able to compete on that commoditized side of the market with the intensive. But then you've got another third tier of, you know, the, the, the kind of wealthier countries or, the, or you know, countries that have a, people with a higher level of wealth and have a desire to um, attach morals to their purchases they're, they're, and, and are prepared to pay that extra money for 
um, a certainty that, that, that they're going to be paying the money because it's a sustainable animal welfare product and, and therefore the premiums are there for that. So you could almost have, you know, distinct markets globally that are, that are going to have look, a space for everyone. But that, that's just an extension of what we already have, really. You know, you think you can, you can go and get, you know, Iceland in the UK, you can go and get 48 burgers for a pound that are 20% horse meat, 40% sawdust, and the rest, you, you're going to have that market, and then you've got um, Tesco's in the, in the middle somewhere with, you know, shoulder of lamb and whatnot, and, and then you might have Waitrose or whatever, which is slightly more, or Marks and Spencer's, which is slightly more expensive. So you're always going to have tiers of foods, you know, people going for a, a $1 burger uh, versus, you know, Wagyu steak for lunch. You're always going to have tiers of who has the ability and capacity to pay for a product. The only difference is now it's maybe changing and that you're going to have the really high end, uh, which will be your steaks, rack of lamb, etc. And then real meat burgers and then fake meat, other things, potentially. I think I'm very much against government intervention in all sorts in markets, but I think this is an opportunity where the governments could do some good because if it's the government's imposed minimum standards of environmental and, and animal welfare, then it raises the, the boats, all the boats. And so we see that, for example, in France, where France has these different rules about cheeses and, and wine and olive oil and things like that and minimum standards. So I don't see why, the, why they shouldn't have the same on grain, for example, or animal welfare. So you'd have a, at the moment, there's a lot of sort of quasi-independent private uh, certification agencies that do that job, uh, but it's a very difficult because they're, they're spread globally and it's tough. Um, but I can see there's a role for government invention to impose, governments to impose more minimum standards and higher standards on on food production. In terms and, of, from the book here, I haven't read the book yet, so the, the answer might be in there. Um, one of the things that we, 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 we speak about this all the time, we debate one another on this. <clears throat> there's, there's, with grain, yeah, there's no consumer, like I'm talking end user of the product, nobody buys grain in the Western world. You buy a product which is derived from grain, bread, bakery products, you know, etc. And obviously in the developing world, they still buy grain and make their own flour. I buy grain, Andrew, for my, uh, my grain burner. Yeah, well, you're, my environmentally friendly uh, pallet heater well, that burns grain. Well, let's not talk about that because you're, you're diverting food. You know, you're, you're, you're one of the causes of the problem. Uh, but the, there's no emotion, really, in, in my view, from, from the consumer about grains. And the environmental impact because they don't think about it it's just bread whereas i think with meat one of the issues there is that there's you're actually buying a product which is you know cut off the hindquarters of a cow and then they've got a product there's not a huge supply chain in terms of there's not much changes from once the cattle's dead to once it arrives on your plate on a restaurant so so the consumer is naturally closer to the the farmer at least there's a feeling there or a perception there. So, so do you think it's, it's, it's a more pressing issue, the environmentalism, the uh, uh, you know, social factors in meat than there would be in grains? It's possible there's been a big uh, anti-meat campaign over the last few months in the press. Um, you see waves of them coming through, um, which some people are suggesting is, is for example, being financed by some of the alternative meat companies, etc. This, so you get these big waves of anti-meats, and that fuels the discussion, uh, which is the the object of it. Um, and that's died down again now since 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 the last few weeks. There's been far fewer articles, so you get waves of this consumer consciousness, um, and it is. But it's not just a sort of fad. It's uh, some people will are moving away from meat. So you're going to get a small percentage, like 10% of people who would prefer plant-based. 
And then you get, as you said earlier, on is is you get another percentage that would be willing to pay more for for grass finished cattle, for example, beef, and then you get the rest that um, just want a very cheap two for one packet in in Tesco's or Woolworths. Or Iceland. So it is differentiated. the the biggest The biggest ones are coffee in terms of consumer contact with the producer because it's the same beans that you have right from the farm to the to the cup. Um, cocoa is another one. But wheat, as you say, is quite um, detached. But when you go to the baker's shop or the supermarket, you buy a loaf of bread, uh, you, you can visualize a little bit the, the mill that produced it, the ground, the flour, the farmer that produced it. Um, soybeans, you can't because you, when you're buying your, <coughs> your, your meat, you can't imagine the, the, the soybean farmer that produced the, the, the feed for the meat. So some of these, these supply chains are much more visible and evident in the consumer's view and others are less so. In, 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 in the new book, uh, what, what, you, you said it was nine commodities that it covers. What, what are those commodities? Oh, you're testing me now. Uh, so it's uh, wheat, uh, corn, soybeans, rice, sugar, coffee, cocoa, cotton, palm oil. Okay. I didn't, cover, I didn't count those, but I think it's No, nine. that was nine. That was nine. You got them all. I was counting as you were going, Jonathan. See, we're just, we're just, te- <laughs> we're, we're just testing to see that you're, you, had, you hadn't, been, hadn't been ghostwritten by someone else. Uh, have, have you, uh, I've got a couple of ideas. I know, I know Swiffin gave you sort of the, the, the idea for the, uh, the new Merchants of Grain book. I've got, I've got a couple of ideas here for, for, for books that would be good, uh, if, you, if you want to note this down. Uh, uh, <laughs> Jonathan just rushing off to get a pen. Listening, <laughs> uh, it would be good. It would be good to see a similar uh, commodity conversation style book or conversational book, but with participants in in the livestock chain, uh, because it's sort of a, a forgotten about. You know, because because we got that really interesting dynamic in the last couple of years, which is similar to grains with more consolidation. Uh, you know, you've got your JBSs, but you've also got likes of, you know, cargo teas, and, and it's quite an interesting marketplace. So, so, so a similar sort of one would be interesting there. Uh, the other one is going back to one of the comments that you mentioned earlier with the review of of the book, with somebody saying, "I wanted to have some, I want to see the dark side of of commodity merchanting." Be interesting to see. A, a book about the disasters in grains, or not the disasters, but the when things went wrong, I, as 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 almost a lesson to the to the to the industry, because I like a really good book, and I recommend everyone reading it as well. Is a book by Caroline Overington uh, called Kickback, and it's it's actually quite similar to your book in a way, uh, but it looks at the AWB oil for food scandal and, and and what happened from that. It's a really good book and it shows what happens when things go wrong. Uh, but but it, it would be interesting to see a book that looks at the pitfalls of the trade when things go wrong. Like when I think Cargill in the 80s or 90s uh, sent seed wheat to Iraq but hadn't labelled it properly and it poisoned a whole bunch of people. Uh, but yeah, no, I think it's yeah, that's my that's my two 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 ideas for, for books. Yeah, I think but on meat, I don't know enough about the meat supply, and I have a rule that I don't want to write about stuff that I don't understand because it decredibilizes anything, everything. If you write rubbish, if you get one thing wrong in a book, somebody will be reading will it and you. go, well, "I didn't know what he's talking about," and just throw it in the bin. Um, the trader, good traders, never talk about their good trades; they always talk about disaster trades and laugh about them afterwards and say, oh, this is what I did. The, I tried to get the traders in the books uh, and to write, to talk about their bad trades, but the big companies don't want to highlight their stupidities <laughs> when things go wrong. So uh, tended not to talk about the, talk about the bad trades uh, over beer afterwards, but yeah. not, not really in the interview. Um, so, the, there was one book I was thinking about writing, which is about this true cost of food that I mentioned earlier. 
and the subsidies and the bad the, the market distortions etc but that's a little bit beyond me because that's that's much more environmental analytical um and so i'm not really up to that i'm just writing more about trading and the things i know right? agricultural supply the, the crops the crop trading so i think and also i'm 65 years old so i think people are fed up with me i i had a meeting with a uh, some friends in Geneva the other day uh, who are still in the business and I realized how out of touch I was after a few years being out of the business so I thought no this is that's the last book good enough for me um, well, well I and people are bored with me now anyway well last night I'm I'm, I'm currently uh, obviously in Scotland at the moment I've been on holiday but I have most of the time I've been spent in a in a cottage in Ayrshire with no telephone reception and uh, and no internet and I'm in Glasgow just now, and last night I was asked to come on to a Twitter Spaces, which is like a podcast, but live. And they asked me sort of, I don't know, two or three minutes before it started, to say, oh, can you come on and talk about wheat? And what's happening in the market just now is that I haven't actually been looking at it. You know, I'm not. It's, you sort of, you go away for two weeks and you feel out of touch. So, so a couple of years would, 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 would make it difficult. Uh, in terms of, of oh, commodity, commodity trading is is binary. It's either on or it's off. You can't do it half the time. Yeah. So um, you've got to if you're if you're a commodity trader, you've got to be in touch with the telephone or your screen all the time. So probably coming to the end, Jonathan. I don't want to take up too much of your time because you've you've got to get out there and sell books and and whatnot. You know, I can imagine you standing in the in, in the street in in Geneva with a little uh, a little uh, table with all your books laid out, trying to trying to trying to. It might it might up. be a big rush. It might be a big rush on the books, Andrew. Once the listeners get a get a get a hear of this podcast, there could be a bit of a surge in purchases. But but I just said yeah. I just said I had one sort of final sort of. Uh, question or what would you what would be your first thing to say to about commodity about commodity traders to somebody who doesn't know anything about the industry do you mean did you mean like a new like someone just coming in what would be the advice yeah, to them just, or just the general what, what would your you know general advice be like what would be the, the most important piece of advice on getting into the commodity markets Oh, and I, very quickly, I think to a young trader, young person thinking of getting into the industry, I'd advise them to go to a big company to start with because that's where they get the good training. Uh, if they go to a smaller company, they're unlikely to get the training. Um, secondly, to be interested in everything uh, because none of these commodities trade in isolation and none, none of them in, in, in silos. So if you're trading wheat, you've got to follow vegetable oils, you've got to follow corn, you've got to follow everything else. If you trade sugar, you've got to follow... The, the crude oils, the energy markets because of the biofuel links. So you have to be extremely curious and open-minded. Um, secondly, thirdly, I would advise them just to, um, basically you can't, it's very tough to do this business to be a trader on your own. Uh, the trading industry has changed in the past. It used to be single people going out and making deals on sailing ships. Now it's all it's teamwork and all teams working together. It's the soybean traders in in Brazil talking to the crush to the crushers in China via the Geneva office. So it's all about teamwork and working together with the others to get the biggest picture, the most overall picture you can have. So um, big company curiosity to learn as much as you can about everything else that's going around your commodity and to work within a team and not on your own so that you can cover the full global picture. So, so for my next question, or similar sim sort of format of, 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 of <laughs> if you give a statement, what would be your statement to farmers about traders and merchants? Um, I think, first of all, you have to work with them. Um, I interviewed uh, Todd Toole, who's head of corn trading at Cargill, and he explained very clearly um, that they're a team. And he was talking about the team within Cargill and the various different offices uh, for the corn trading. And 
I said, well, so that, does that mean your farmers and your consumers are your competitors? And he said, no, they're part of the team. The market is my competitor. So what I would advise any farmer to do is to build a, a relationship with the merchants, a merchant that they feel that they can trust and that they can get on with, and together with the merchants work together to find the best deal, but also to, to, to beat the beat the market. The market is the competitor. The merchant is not the competition of the farmer. The farmer is not the competitor of the, the merchant, um, the market. That's probably, that's a great bit of advice. And it's probably, I was just thinking as you were saying that, I'm guessing you're, um, you were focused more on that grains commodity side in that space, but it's very true also, Andrew, of farmers and their approach towards the meat processor in the, in the cattle and sheep meat space that um, sometimes it's quite adversarial, whereas they probably should be looking at that whole supply chain as um, part of the team, you know, rather than, you know, a, a competitive type scenario. You know, any part of that supply chain that's not functioning right is going to cause grief for the other participants in the supply chain. Um, the idea is that it should, uh, shouldn't be a zero-sum game. It shouldn't be that the, the producer loses if the processor gains. The idea is to increase the size of the pot, to more add more value, and to get a higher-priced uh, product, a better selling product at the end, um, rather than going saying there's a fixed price for this at the end, and therefore, if you earn more, I'll earn less. The idea is to increase the size of the pot and make, try to get away from this idea of commodities as a zero-sum game. I think that's a perfect way to end the conversation, the, 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 the commodity okay. conversation. Because, uh, like, I think it's, uh, like, I think it, you've shed uh, a lot of light on, on the industry. Because I think there's a lot of, especially in Australia at the moment as well, there's a lot of animosity uh, from farmers to, to the trade. Um, because is, you know, we've got you know the lowest price grain in the world. We've got you know, large discounts that we're not normally going to see. Uh, so it's really interesting to to hear <coughs> about the trade from from a different point of view uh, and from 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 the merchants' point of view. So again, this is another uh, sincere when I say this is one of the ones I was looking forward to the most. Um, That's what we wanted to do for a long time. So it was. Uh, Opportunity, we've got a new book coming out. We can have a chat about it, and uh, if we, could, we could probably keep this conversation going on for another hour or two more, and we could talk about the future of algorithmic trading and whatnot. But I think we can we can keep that for another day. There's plenty to talk about in this space. I think it's good timing, Andrew, because I don't know if it's the same on your end, Jonathan, but Andrew, your lines become incredibly scratchy. I, don't, I think uh, the rest of Scotland must be waking up and uh, jumping on the uh, jumping on the internet and uh, causing grief to your system there. So um, thanks very much, Jonathan, for coming on, and uh, I hope the, the listeners uh, enjoyed it. Go out and buy the books uh, if you haven't already. I'm certainly going to go and grab uh, them myself and see what I can learn. Um, so I appreciate your time, Jonathan, and um, see you when you've got nothing on. Matt, Matt. Yeah, well, thanks thanks Matt. a lot for the time and enjoy the conversation. So you guys take care and good luck with your businesses. No worries. Thanks. And I'm looking forward to the movie version coming out. <laughs> well, I'm negotiating with Netflix at the moment, but they're being a bit tough. Yeah. So, um, I'll get my lawyers on it. There you go. Well, well thanks for coming along. Ciao for now. All right. You take care. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Right, Cheers. Bye-bye.